Hi, I'm Steve Shu. I'm Corey Washington. Welcome to Manifold. Apologies for the audio in today's episode. Corey and I are locked down in our homes because of the coronavirus. We're not in our usual studio, and so the audio may not be up to uh, its usual standards. But I hope you enjoy the episode. Our guests today are Kieran James Lubin and Victor Wong of Block Apps. And today we're going to talk about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and digital uh, transactions. However, we're recording this just after the big lockdown due to coronavirus has happened uh, in the United most of the United States and also in Toronto. Uh, where Victor is. And so uh, I think we just can't resist discussing coronavirus, at least for a few minutes. So I thought we would do that uh, just to start out the episode. And um, my thesis that I put out on my blog is the U.S. is going to, uh, it's very unlikely that we're going to avoid now uh, some serious overloads uh, of specifically intensive care units in uh, fairly broad uh, number of places in the United States. Anybody want to agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I'm not convinced of it. So I think the, the question is, how far is the current spread actually reached? So if you walk around, I'll give you the boots on the ground perspective. If you walk around New York City, pretty much the streets are empty. Um, we are not yet in the, you know, absolutely being required to remain in our homes stage. That may yet happen. Uh, but given that basically all retail locations are closed, everyone who can work from home is working from home. Um, at least in that sense, there are many fewer opportunities for exposure than there were a week ago. This doesn't mean that we haven't already, you know, there's a, a delay of what, four to six days in terms of the um, kind of infection time uh, to the, the manifestation of symptoms, if I understand it correctly. Also, it doesn't mean there isn't a large subcontingent of people who are kind of flouting the rules, um, who may yet still infect, you know, qu quite a number. So I would say it's not obvious to me. Maybe Steve has actually done the calculation and knows for sure that it's semi-inevitable at that point. It's not obvious to me that it's inevitable, um, but I don't know how I would know exactly, except because the statistics are kind of coming out a week to two weeks after the sort of reality of the spread. So yeah, I can I can give you my rough argument. So uh, there are trailing numbers for doubling timescale in some decent comparators. Like so, Japan has gotten it down to about ten days, and I just have a hard time believing that the U.S. in its current status is doing better than Japan, which has been battling this for a long time, and people regularly wear face masks there when they're just out on the street and they've also gone, they've also canceled school and things like that. So, so I doubt our doubling time is any slower than once every 10 days. It probably could be a little bit faster. And so then if you just, if you, if you put that in uh, and then you start with say a few tens of thousands infected right now, which is I think a reasonable you know baseline number, then uh, you, I think cannot avoid <laughs> unless, unless by magic somehow 10 becomes a hundred, uh, relatively quickly, you just cannot avoid uh, some, at least some regions of the country where the ICUs get overwhelmed. So, uh, I guess question for you, just if you, if we had sort of a perfect um, set of 
government technocrats and uh, an all-seeing police force? Do you think you you know at this point in the U.S. it could be sort of close to stopped in its tracks, or yeah, yeah. okay. I so do because that's the Taiwan experience. I think the Taiwan and to some extent the Singapore and South Korea experiences are the sort of leading edge, and yeah. there they do have very aggressive cell phone tracking. So in other words, if they if they ask you to quarantine, for example, in Taiwan, and they look at they can track you by your cell phone, and if they notice you violated quarantine, then they're going to come and get you. And so, um, could the U.S. do that? I absolutely believe that both Android and uh, iPhone OS allow Apple and Google to support that kind of bit, uh, uh, enforcement, and we have enough manpower to do it if we only have say ten thousand cases right now. So. Um, I think we could impose very strong um, contact tracing uh, the way that those Asian countries have, but we won't do it. Uh, we may do it when we're coming out of lockdown. That, that's my main hope, that we'll go through the lockdown, we'll uh, reduce the growth uh, really a lot until the point where we're able to come out of lockdown, and then at that point, we'll be able to enforce contact tracing and things like that. Well, I, I think the thing about Taiwan and Singapore, though, also is that they have very um, sort of established healthcare systems with very strict healthcare record tracking on an individual basis, even uh, you know during the during normal times. So I think all of that technology put together, plus like the contact tracking, plus the fact that the area of those places are fairly small and pretty dense in terms of um, connectivity, I think has helped them a lot to handle all of this. And I totally agree. Those are the two places in the world that have seemed to manage with all of this the best. Of course, however, the, the density uh, works against you in an epidemic. So although it may help technologically, it's what's going to drive increased contacts and uh, more extensive contacts. And that's going to lead to greater spread. Steve and I went back and forth about this over email a little bit, but the U.S. is a much larger place. There's very low density in many, many areas. And the data we're getting now are largely from major urban areas like New York City, uh, Seattle. And uh, these are places of much higher density than the suburbs where we are right now. And um, so I'm inclined to think that if you're making projections from what's happening in major cities uh, to what's happening all across the country, you're likely to misrepresent uh, the reality because you're not treating it with full uh, uh, heterogeneity. Um, but I, well, well, I just want to add, when I was talking about um, technological density, I just meant more like, for example, things like cell phone wireless towers. So they can have a much more accurate triangulation of movement than probably available in most of the U.S. You know, I, t I totally get your point. I'm saying that that's a huge benefit. There's, there's density both technologically and human in yes. human terms, right? So it, it cuts both ways. It's incredibly beneficial as far as tracking goes, but it's also incredibly beneficial for transmitting the disease. Steve uh, has his so, hand raised. So I, I would say, Vic, that actually U.S. Uh, geolocation from mobile is actually good enough for this application. So, so it is, there is an advantage uh, for, from density for that, but I think uh, U.S. capabilities are good enough, having looked at some of the data. Uh, to Corey's point, I cheated a little bit because my prediction was not that every ICU would be overloaded, but I that there would be many regions of the U.S. where ICUs are overloaded, and those would be the urban regions, um, which are also fairly cosmopolitan and have had a lot of travel, you know, international travel and stuff. So, so I feel pretty confident that I'm actually cheating a little bit because I actually know that in the Seattle area, they already in they already have this problem. So, um, 
So they've got uh, some added capacity now because they're going to open up the VA actually to uh, emergency beds. And I actually don't know the full number of beds, but a friend of mine runs a, a sort of moderate sized VA hospital in Massachusetts and those are going to become available. Yeah. But, you know, but I'm actually interested in the kind of prediction about doubling. So what's extremely hard to know is how many people are actually infected right now. I think it's plausible that it's Kieran. Is that, I, yeah, I said that the behavior is so extreme. The response has been so dramatic that I don't see you having a whole lot more transmission because people are effectively quarantining themselves, even in places like East Lansing, where there's no quarantine order at all. So the question is how much more transmissions there are going to be beyond the people are infected now? Yeah, that's a very key question. And that's why I use the Japan trailing 10-day number uh, as a reference. So in the unconstrained setting, I think their data is pretty strong now that shows that doubling time is about three days. And you have that data from Lombardy and you also have it from Korea and other places. So the question is now with the measures that have been imposed. So in, in where we are now, bars are closed, restaurants are closed, gyms are closed, schools are closed. I agree there's been a huge decrease in transmission rate, so a very big increase in doubling time. The question is, has it gone above 10? Has it gone above 15? I, 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 I doubt it's gone above 10 just because that's the Japan number. And Korea is at 16 right now. So that still leaves a problem. Like if, if it's at 10 for um, another month, we, we still have a problem. Can we do much better than that? Uh, even those societies haven't done much better than that, right? So I think China got to 36 or something for its last doubling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think another factor in all this is the, whether they can handle outflows of patients in a sort of middle ground area, which is what they did in China, right? Like, you know, you started to have very extensive testing and moving people into isolation facilities that are not hospitals and only moving people into hospitals when they really needed it. Um, I know in New York example, they, they talked about uh, putting, you know, enlisting military bases or other places to maybe possibly do that. So that, that is a big question if they will actually go forward with any of that. I had a point uh, related to the density if I recall correctly, for, for some definition of um, sort of city, suburb, and rural, the United States by population is about a third each. So a third of the people live in cities, you know, third, third live in suburbs, third in rural, which means at least the city people, that's still like more than 100 million. Um, so I don't know that that would change. To Steve's point, you know, that would be plenty. It might not be a majority of the country, but there's enough people in a high-density situation that it's, yeah, um, I'm cheating. I'm cheating because I, I only need to win on those 100 million that you just mentioned, right? right? And it still, still satisfies my definition. By the way, even, there's an issue of compliance, Corey, which is that you're compliant and we're all compliant, but you're not out looking to see who's not compliant, right? And so when I go for long walks in my neighborhood, I saw truckloads of guys who do lawn work and stuff riding together to a site to do lawn work. And uh, they were, didn't look compliant at all in, in any respect. You know, they were just goofing around. They were not taking anything seriously. They probably thought it, well, people like us are just stupid, right? So um, there's a, there's a, if 10% of your population is not compliant very much, then that's the part where it's gonna grow, right? Yeah, that's right. Although we should note that there's actually no order to quarantine yourself in East Lansing. There's social distancing. So there's a distribution of responses. The people like you and me who are, in fact, going overboard and effectively quarantining ourselves, 
there's a set of people probably around the median who may in fact just be social distancing. But my experience, it looks like it's actually biased. And again, I've got a biased sample towards doing more than people are being asked to do. So again, I don't know how many people are just out more right. or less. I, I think there's like, there seems to be two extremes and I think maybe one, one end of the extreme and then there's sort of a nihilism kind of extreme where people are just behaving completely like nothing's going on. And, you know, in, in major cities where it's quite dense, you know, you still, still see people riding on subways in New York. So I, I, think, I think there are those, uh, those two extremes that are happening in people's psychological um, mindset. These, these guys riding in the, you know, the trucks where they have lawnmowers and stuff and leaf blowers were not social distancing at all. They were like one foot from each other and uh, just goofing off, goofing around. And um, I believe there are many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands potentially of college students in Florida right now just like rubbing on each other in <laughs> drunken state. So, so I think, I think they're large and then they're going to fly home. Right. So, well, the mayors of a few of these Southern Florida towns have put the kibosh on this stuff. I think they've outlawed large gatherings. And we actually point out that I, as far as I know, I checked last week, there was a, as of Friday, there's one confirmed case in Ingham County where we live. So the risk for these guys, uh, although they are flaunting the public health recommendations is still quite low. Yeah, I'm not saying that here, you know, here we may be starting from a very low base and have fairly good isolation to begin with, but, you know, I'm sure there are people in New York City who are not compliant. Certainly. Oh, no, really? New York City? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I would say, I think there's like sort of an attitude dimension and also like a necessity dimension. So in the last week, I've had to take like one or two Ubers just because, and neither, none of the drivers seemed stressed about um, the idea of letting someone into their car. I'm like pressed against the window, <laughs> trying to stay as far away from them as I can. Um, and, you know, it's it's because it's income, right? Uh, and I think plenty of, let's say, restaurant, you know, hospitality workers right now would kind of rather risk it than be at home uh, at this point. It's, and, I think it's totally rational for the Uber guy because he's a young guy and he's probably not going to get sick. But and even if he transmits to some people, it's no skin off his nose, right? So as far as the college students, I think the, the, the percentage of uh, college students that are infected right now is really very low. And so sending them home only creates problems for a few families. Uh, whereas if you left them on campus for a while and then dismissed them, you know, you'd have a much bigger problem because it's probably spreading pretty fast on, on campus. So um, I don't think it's crazy to dismiss universities or go to well, distance. I think there's a question also in where you are in terms of timing too. Like if you are assuming the infection has already taken hold in your institution, sending them home obviously is a bad, um, probably a bad scenario for everyone involved. But if you're assuming that people, and I think this is the assumption that a lot of people are under that it hasn't taken hold yet and they may be very wrong, um, but that's sort of institution by institution that they got to make that call. Yeah. I can say that we as a company now have a uh, fairly strict work from home policy at this point. So uh, had I been in the role of the university president, I probably would have done the same. We, we just sent people through all of the different uh, lab, not just lab, but other areas around campus to just take uh, inventory of how many people were using the space, what the density was, and how many were practicing you know, uh, good hygiene and stuff. And uh, the reports came back 
pretty positive. So um, at least right now, the, the campus, I would say the transmission rate on campus has got to be really low. Well, we, we also have one worker, even though we've instituted um, work from home, uh, who lives around the corner from our WeWork office, where we have our offices. And he's made the decision to go into the office because he thinks there are fewer people in the WeWork than in his apartment complex at this point. So, Yeah, exactly. I'm talking to you guys from the office, partly for that reason. Yeah. No, you know. <laughs> one, one more, I guess, sort of high-level thought I've had is I think people are making, uh, I think Kira noticed this about the Uber driver, maybe it's you, Steve. Um, that look, people are making their own personal economic risk calculations. There's a benefit to avoiding being infected, but there's an opportunity cost. And it's really interesting because you had the same kind of calculation being made during the early part of the AIDS, actually later part of the AIDS epidemic, as to how people are going to curb their behavior, sexual primarily. And many people decide it's worth taking risk uh, for certain pleasures that they always had enjoyed. And people are going to make that during every single epidemic. It may be a driver going out, maybe someone having unprotected sex, but it's a personal calculation that has implications for other people. Um, but yeah, I think you're that, seeing it on a kind of societal level scale. Yeah, that's why government has to intervene and lock, lock, I think probably has to lock down society to some degree for some period of time. Yeah, but to, to the point, there's, um, I, I guess it's difficult for that to be an unfunded mandate because, you know, a, your average, your Uber driver, your um, server at a restaurant is probably more living paycheck to paycheck than not. And so, you say you got to stay home, what are they going to do then? Start. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you, you, no. you know, this is most difficult for the working class in America. We're living paycheck to paycheck and uh, can't work from home. And so hence the helicopters, the helicopters are coming to dump cash all over us. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this joke, but you know, helicopter money, Ben Bernanke. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the I, you know I, I never thought I would see the day, but the helicopters are on the horizon, <laughs> loaded with uh, you know twenty dollar bills. So it's at happening. least they're dumping them on people this time, rather than dumping them on the banks. <laughs> yeah. Do you think we'll see? So I'd imagine usually in situations like this, people like landlords, lenders, that sort of thing, make out pretty okay. Do you think we'll start to see imposed? Um, relief uh, on some of the, the more traditional haves, um, preferentially have-nots to a degree, you know. Pretty difficult political economy question. I, my guess from based on the last crisis is no. The, the, the ha these guys will make out and uh, will socialize the losses. The taxpayers and future generations will pick up the tab. So that's my guess. I can actually speak to that somewhat. Um with a small segment of my uh, personal set of responsibilities, I am the executor of my aunt's uh, estate and she owned a house in, uh, in Crown Heights and I Airbnb it for a reason that uh, I need to be available to uh, a family member where they to come back. But Airbnb has this policy now that people can cancel and uh, it was just imposed and uh, without penalty. Normally there's a penalty if you cancel within seven days, but the rule has been changed. You can cancel the day before you come. And uh, you're, I think, guaranteed a certain amount back, but the person can ask you for the whole amount. 
And so, of course, I've been giving the whole amount back for everybody who cancels. But I think here's a case where uh, there's a sense in which uh, people who are clearly owning these places are economically better off uh, often than the people who are renting them. And there the cost comes out of the person who's uh, owning it. You know, again, this isn't my personal account. It's something I am simply the executor of. But sure, at least that's I mean, a small part of the economy that seems to have responded in a positive way. I, I, think, I think if you are in the hospitality business or the hotel or airline business, you're not going to be made whole. I mean, it's, it's still going to be a painful period that you look back on. But uh, there may be bailouts, but I don't think the bailouts are going to make them whole. Yeah, I've heard in some parts of China um, that, and, and this, the, the, I, I, I don't know if this is, comes from regulation or, uh, you know, if it's widespread, but people are saying that um, I know certain people who own property there or landlords there who said, you know, they cannot evict people, which kind of makes sense during the quarantine period. You don't want them on the street. But, <laughs> I have seen, uh, uh, there is, a, I think in the U.S. also, or maybe New York, et cetera, basically evictions are something that the police are not paying any attention to for, well, the foreseeable, but, you know. Makes sense. For the near term. Hey, so I, I we, mean, the, 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 sorry, the, the big question in my mind is how long, um, you know, you need to impose these for. It seems like, at least in Wuhan, things are kind of stabilizing to a certain point. But do you have any estimates in terms of time frames? Oh, uh, you're talking about coming out the back end for the yes. station places? I, yeah, so I think there's, I, at least according to what I've read, they're starting to let some people go back to work and there's more traffic on the streets in various places. So I think they're experimenting with it, but because they have a widespread testing regime in place, they can detect if there's, you know, things are starting to spike back up and then they can reimpose controls. I think they're going to try to take it that way. Um, and nobody knows whether it will work. I, I sort of guess it will work, but uh, we'll, we'll see. It's an experiment. What about in the U.S.? I, I wanted to say, oh, will it work? Sorry, you broke up for me for a little bit. But yeah, I was just asking, when do you think lockdowns will more or less end in the U.S.? And, and yes, I guess, will it be effective when they end? I, I haven't thought that carefully about it, but I sort of <laughs> feel like 60 days of lockdown, uh, that's, that's what the Asians had, right, roughly. So I think 60 days would be the best case for us, right? Yeah, I think we don't know a lot about the virus. And one of the key things is uh, the degree to which it's affected by rising temperatures. And so if uh, high temperatures tamp down uh, infections and transmissions, it's a real benefit. But I think there's an open question as to whether this is going to become a new normal to some extent until we have a vaccine or widespread immunity. So if you don't get rid of uh, all the cases and it remains highly transmissible, then you've got a problem if you go back to normal, obviously, because it will come back, except for the people who become immune. And I think there's some evidence that immunity isn't complete. So I think it's really highly uncertain whether it's going to go away or there may be a second wave or just remain at a fairly low level, come up and down. It's just it's incredibly hard to guess those things. I, I, I totally agree. And I, but I think what, what is meant by normal in the East Asian situation is that the government's monitoring very carefully and you may have a little app on your phone which gives you your risk level and if your risk level exceeds some threshold they don't let you on the metro that day you know and so and, and so new normal could be quite different from uh, status quo a month ago, a year ago yeah that'd be a radical transformation of u.s society if we had to come to that yeah it's kind of uh, been 
you know, if you read sci-fi novels about uh, futures where we have pandemic things, th these these societal coping mechanisms are not really that novel. The idea that the society is just on a constant lookout, people are being tested a lot, and then there's a fair amount of tracking and privacy invasion of people in order to keep it under control. I think the, these things have been thought about before. Yeah, this is in fact what happened with the HIV uh, epidemic. Uh, what was normal just became a very different phenomenon. People's behavior changed and it became uh, just standard practice. Right. And, and the, the people that are at low risk but are being kind of like forced to go along with it are young people uh, for coronavirus. And in our generation, it was males, heterosexual males. <laughs> I think there's a sense in which uh, these policies may operate best if we have a sense we're all in it together. Yeah, it, it may be a, a noble lie, a necessary lie, but I think for a long, I, I mean, you were probably one of these guys too that figured out fairly early on during the AIDS thing that uh, female to male heterosexual transmission was extremely low probability. Like they had almost no documented cases of it. And yet they were scaring all of the guys to wear condoms because it was just better for society. Which it was, yeah. I mean, better for your partner too, since uh, male to female is, of course, much higher. Yes, right? but, but it was a deliberate, I think it was a deliberate obfuscation of the reality. Absolutely, right? yeah. But built on, I guess I'd say, the reality, you have to essentially lie to men to probably get them to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to say, we, so we, we, I think we've been talking about coronavirus for some time now. Should we switch back to the original topic of the podcast? Have, have we, say yes. Sure, why not? Yeah. Okay. And I think the right. two topics are not unrelated because I think there's a sense of blockchain that it's a technology that would survive the apocalypse. <laughs> and many people are thinking this is <laughs> the beginning of it. So <sighs> let's All move right. on well, to let it, me, guys. Let me, let me go back to uh, the main topic. And, um, and I first wanted to start with just this funny story about how the three of us know each other. And let me just throw something out my recollection of it, uh, which might be wrong, so you guys should correct me, but I know Victor because he was CEO of a tech startup software company in Beijing, which one of my former, uh, my former PhD student, who was also CTO of my company SafeWeb, was Vic's CTO in Beijing, and that's how I know Victor. And Yeah, that's good. And I know James, uh, I know Kieran because he contacted me out of the blue, maybe because he, he was familiar with me uh, through my blog, uh, to talk about some theoretical aspects of blockchain and particularly Ethereum. And I think I might have introduced Kieran to Vic and uh, to this other guy, Jim. Uh, and, ah, and so yeah. is, that, is that how Block Apps got started? So you introduced me to Jim. Um, so in the summer of 2014, I was working on the Ethereum project and kind of re-enrolled at Berkeley. Um, in that fall, and he said, "Hey, um, you know, I know a guy who's uh, you know very technical, and he's kind of down the road from you. Um, he'd probably be interested in this stuff. Why don't you meet up with Jim?" And so we met up uh, for the first time, you know, in some sort of coffee shop in Oakland or uh, uh, something of that nature, and kind of hit it off from there. And then later, so Jim brought Victor to the conference that uh, the, the two conferences I put on. Um, that week that you attended, um, that was the first time I met Victor. So, yeah, and, and in parallel, and in parallel to that, my, I was making the transition from the startup 
uh, one of my startups in China to coming back to North America. And I was talking to Jim about various projects that uh, we could potentially do together as a new startup. And um, you know, he kind of pointed me to say, yes, I've been talking to this guy, I've been working on this crazy thing called Ethereum. I don't know if there's any business purpose behind it, but maybe you should come and take a look at it. Great, so, so it's one of those amazing stories where it's like, it really is personal networks that uh, sometimes get these things founded. And, and actually the role of founder is such a special role in a startup that it's not surprising that oftentimes founders are introduced uh, to each other by friends or actually people that they, they themselves have founded companies with. Um, I want to add that Kieran dropped out of a PhD program at Berkeley in mathematical physics to do this startup. And uh, he had a natural affinity for Jim and myself because Jim and I are both theoretical physicists. So um, there's also that connection. Um, what I want to do now is do a little intro to crypto. So we have a very smart audience for this podcast, but very few of them, I would say, are experts on crypto. And I just want to introduce one concept, which I think, and you guys should correct me if there are other concepts that are absolutely central that we have to introduce so someone can have a decent understanding of blockchain. But I thought that we couldn't really get into a good discussion unless we at least said something about digital signatures. Um, so let me, let me try that for a minute, and then you guys can, can add to what I say. So there's this interesting idea that uh, in an area called public key cryptography, where you can have a public key that's a kind of long number that identifies you specifically. So I, Steve Shu, have my own public key, which is out there for anybody to look up. And then using that public key, I can, uh, using a private key, which is paired to that public key, and the private key I never share with anybody else, I can sign messages, which other people can determine were definitely written by me and associated with that public identity, um, but only I can do that signing. So that basically I can say something like, I have transferred 100 Bitcoin to Vic, uh, and I hereby sign it using my secret key, which unless some hacker stole it from me, basically that means I really wanted to give the $100 to Vic. And this is a very well understood uh, sort of technology within the field of cryptography, and it, it sort of underlies everything that we're going to talk about. Um, can you guys add to that? So, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So signatures are one of the really key building blocks of blockchains. Maybe there are sort of three or, or four. Um, signatures being one, hashing being another. We don't have to talk about hashing necessarily, but um, we, we can. Peer-to-peer um, -peer networking kind of plus um, consensus algorithms being maybe the third leg, if you will. And I have to think if there are any more, but those, those are sort of the keys. Um, signatures are super common. People just don't know. Anytime you're, um, you see that block for HTTPS in your browser, there's a, a dependence on the signature aspect because basically you need to know that google.com actually is Google. Um, anyone can sort of try to intercept your traffic and impersonate Google, but basically um, they, are, they're, they have a certificate that's sort of uh, available to your browser. And so it knows kind of who Google is and, and it can sort of communicate with Google and authenticate that it really is Google right now. And so it's a, it's a super key technology to use the internet at all. Um, if there were no signatures, you would just be communicating with people you thought were your friends 
um, and they would be trying to steal your credit card number all the time. Um, right. So the manifestation in blockchain, it is kind of pretty much exactly what Steve said. It's, it's sort of that um, the signatures serve as a means of identification of a person and authentication of a content, of the content of a message, basically. So the signature proves that, yes, Kieran, I'm, I'm sending 10 Bitcoin to Victor. Good, good day for you, Victor. Um, and it also proves that, that the exact sentence hasn't been tampered with also. So there's, there's that aspect to things as well. Um, I don't know anything to add. Should I talk at all about hashing or consensus? Well, I, I, I think I think there's one concept there that's really important. There, in particular, application to blockchain is that you don't need any other personal identifiable information about the person in order to verify that they signed it. So, um, you know, I think we're used to more uh, identity mechanisms where you have to prove yourself by offering, you know, a lot of information about your background, say social insurance numbers or addresses or your name. Um, but, you know, I think one of the powers of digital signatures is that simply by having that digital key, you can prove that that public address uh, refers to you. And that allows you to basically sign these transactions and later claim that that was you. And yeah. I think that's one of the very powerful elements that people yeah. are it talking about identity more of a bearer asset which is it, it you know kind of previously didn't work that way sorry good see. so um this digital signature capability this cryptographic capability allows you to as uh kieran said um send a message which other people can verify uh did really come from you and also the content is unadulterated so i want to give a hundred dollars to uh, Vic in, in Bitcoin. Now the blockchain. I believe it was it, ten bitcoins, Steve. So. <laughs> no, 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 it was only hundred. I don't. I'm not. You know, come on. That no. Kieran wanted to give you ten bitcoin. I'm only giving me a hundred bucks. I don't actually know what a bitcoin is worth these days. But anyway, um, uh, now the blockchain itself, you can think of as a public ledger, which records all of these cryptographically signed transactions. So it actually tracks the flow, if you like, of Bitcoin from one user to another, to another, to another. Uh, it doesn't have to be Bitcoin. It could be flows of other things or other contractual obligations. But because of the cryptography, one can sort of verify that the messages are unadulterated and that they actually came from the person uh, that supposedly you know, you say gave away the Bitcoin. And so the idea, in a way, is very simple, that there could be a public ledger that lives and people have different copies of it, but it records all of these cryptographically valid transactions. So, and Steve, to your point, um, maybe there's a, a kind of implicit question of like, why do you need the public ledger part at all, right? If you've got the signature, it's kind of like an IOU or, or that sort of thing. You know, Vic wants to give me 15 Bitcoin back. Um, and so why would you ever need the public thing if you're trying to transact? Couldn't it just be sort of peer to peer? He's got my signature, you know, he can prove it. And basically, the reason is it, it comes from a sort of question of um, my ability to prove that I actually have the thing that I'm, I'm transferring to Victor. And so um, in the normal banking world, you know, I would have an account at the bank and they would just have my history of transactions. They would kind of roll that up into my current balance. And when I go to pay someone, they, well, there's like a time delay. You kind of wait for a while and they say, okay, you know, we see the transactions coming in. We think he has enough money. 
and they kind of later tell the other bank that, yeah, everything is good, you know, thumbs up. Um, and then both banks update their ledgers, basically. Um, and so there's always this element of, is the money actually there, kind of, so to speak, in the normal banking world, which is part of the reason you get delays and it takes four days for payments to clear, et cetera. In the Bitcoin model, um, the, the role of the public ledger is to provide proof, in essence, of the current state of accounts. So um, the, you know, every time I transact, um, there will be a record, and sometimes I'm a recipient, uh, a net recipient of Bitcoin, sometimes I'm a net um, spender of Bitcoin. And at the end of the day, I get sort of a tear-off receipt of all of my previous transactions, and that's the thing I, I go on and hand to Victor. And so um, there is an acceptance process like what two banks would go through that the network itself goes through to, to make that transfer final and then give Victor the right to turn around and then send that Bitcoin to someone else afterwards. And so the role of the public ledger is to make sure the system as a whole kind of is consistent on who owns what, basically. Which in a pure peer-to-peer -peer system with no um, mechanism for that, that process would not happen. Right, and I just want to emphasize that the, the blockchain is totally decentralized. So nobody fully controls it. It's a, just a, a big piece of data that lives, you know, a big string of numbers that lives on the internet and, and uh, no one controls it. There's no central authority that makes decisions about what's right or what's wrong with it. And uh, so in, in that sense, it could even be considered as a societally kind of revolutionary thing because rather than the Fed or a central bank controlling a currency, um, it's actually, in this case, the currency, the Bitcoin or Ethereum, Ether or whatever it is, is actually embedded in the actual thing, the blockchain, which everybody has access to at the same time. Yeah, I think that aspect of decentralization is a really core aspect about blockchains because, you know, up until blockchains have become more popular, there have been other sort of decentralized systems, but um, you always run into two problems. You have centralized systems where one party controls it, say a bank, and they keep things internally consistent. Now, the problem is that they can make changes without anyone knowing. So if it gets hacked or intentionally they want to make changes, then um, they can do it and they have carte blanche and no one can kind of gainsay them to check if what they did is correct or not. And then you, the other alternative you had was more like federated systems where everyone keeps copy of the data, but no one is quite sure who has the most accurate copy. So um, there are always these synchronization issues. Um, you know, big companies, for example, spend a lot of time with auditors to just make sure that, you know, the transactions that you have in your record are the same as the, you have the buyer of your good has. So there's a lot of overhead in that. And no, uh, blockchains and this idea of decentralization really gives this third way. You can have something that's a public record that everyone can see, but it's also secured. So, you know, not everyone can um, just change it arbitrarily. And, and I think that's really, really important. Now, I, I think the most difficult conceptual point for people to really understand blockchain, and, and, and I don't know exactly where we are in the blockchain moment, but there was a period maybe a year ago or two years ago where it was just incredibly hyped. And so you had all kinds of business people and economists and talking heads using the word blockchain. But I think the hardest thing for people to understand is how is it that you have this public ledger 
and there's no central authority deciding what transactions are right or wrong. Um, and yet somehow there is a decision-making mechanism or verification mechanism by which people all agree that yes, this is the actual correct state of the blockchain. And that's the hardest part to explain. And that's where things like hashing and all kinds of uh, difficult uh, computations, Bitcoin mining, concepts like that come in. And I, I've never come up with a, ver a really great way to explain that. I just think people, a lot of people just don't fully grasp that part of it. Maybe you guys have a, a good way to explain it to people. So um, I'll, I'll start. Uh, also flowing with our experience is um, we are not op operating typically in the pure public blockchain world in which you have kind of freely floating cryptocurrencies and all that sort of thing. And the systems are totally unpermissioned. What we serve is more of a B2B use case where businesses are transacting with each other have more or less the same problem of, you know, really uniquely authenticating uh, particular transactional data of, of certain types. Um, that, that the analogy can kind of come from there. Um, it's almost like a blockchain network almost functions like a board that is voting on the next action. And so, um, in a sense, a block, you know, it's a chain of blocks, right? A block is like a proposal from the board, sort of. And basically, there are in the Bitcoin world, you have to do some work to be even be able to allow, be allowed to put a proposal forward. Um, but and it contains sort of a certain set of transactions, basically. So as people are trying to transact with each other, so you know, Victor's trying to send me 20 Bitcoin, um, that transaction is not instantly confirmed, right? There's still a bit of a waiting period. And the reason there's a waiting period is because that information is broadcast to all the people who comprise the blockchain network. So basically, um, I'm a board member of this board. I have some friends who want to get their transactions into the blockchain network. They kind of hand their transactions to me or any of the other board members uh, for their proposal. I kind of collate these together. And when I'm ready, I feel like I've got a good proposal. I put that in front of everyone. Um, and the, it's up to them to sort of ratify this proposal or not, and then continue to move forward and build their subsequent proposals atop my previous one, or reject it and then work from some, some sort of previous state of our sort of joint company. Uh, I don't know if that, that helps at all, but basically the, the idea is that it's like voting, basically. So, um, and in the Bitcoin world, the whole, anyone on the planet is allowed to join and offer their vote. Um, now, there's a mechanism which uh, sort of selects between them the one who's allowed to put the proposal forward. Um, in the more enterprise context, probably it's going to be, you know, 20 companies to each have a vote, that sort of thing. But uh, that's sort of the core idea. Yeah, back to Victor. Let me, let me, let me um, uh, unpack a little bit of what you said. So first of all, you mentioned that Block Apps, your company, is not really actually dealing with cryptocurrencies as people uh, think about them vis-a-vis -vis, say Bitcoin or, or Ethereum. And so I wanna come back to what your actual business model is for your company. But um, some people who know a little bit about Bitcoin may have heard of things like Bitcoin mining or giant computers that are just doing nothing but creating in some sense or generating new Bitcoins for their owners. Now, we don't really need to talk about that because that's more relevant to the cryptocurrency context, but but what that activity is, is this kind of validation or verification process for deciding which version of the blockchain is actually the, the canonical one. And we, we don't really maybe have to go into that, but that's the part that I think people have the most trouble understanding. So we, we could leave that aside. 
Um, so, so I'll just take two minutes to describe this. So uh, as Karen previously discussed, um, one of the things about blockchains is this, it's a kind of voting mechanism. And that's what makes it decentralized. However, one challenge you have with voting mechanisms is that since we don't know who's voting and people can vote, if they can vote as often as they want, you could worry about spamming the system. And people could just vote in a way in their own self-interest. So one of the things that's interesting about public blockchains is they've solved this. And the way they solve this is that there is a cost to a vote. And that cost, since you can't charge them directly by taking their credit card information or getting um, you know, banking information from them, the way you get that cost for a vote is you make them waste electricity. And that is what mining is. So mining is basically making sure that there is a cost to vote. And if you um, vote in a way that is against the interests of everyone else, you will effectively lose your, um, you will lose your deposit. If you vote in a way that is along with everyone else, you get entered into what is effectively a lottery so you can win more of the cryptocurrency back, which would pay for your cost plus more. Great, I thought that was great. So the basic idea is that, and, and to clarify, that the voting that's going on here is determining which version of the blockchain is the real one, the correct one that has the right transactions in it. And the incentive, so you risk something, you have to do a computation, you burn a bunch of energy to do that computation, and you have to risk that investment. And so your incentive is to actually vote toward the, the right validation of the right blockchain. And if you're right, then you, you have a chance of winning, say, a Bitcoin or a, a, some Ether. That's correct. And so, so like, and the longer you vote and continuously vote, the chances of you uh, getting that money back increases. So there's, you know, there's a real strong economic incentive to keep doing this. Now, in our case, when we do enterprise blockchains, we don't need to put these sort of economic um, incentives in there because people already have legal contracts with their partners. So that provides the incentive for people to um, vote properly. Maybe you could just say, uh... For now, what is the actual business model of block apps and what, what is the value proposition for your startup? Okay, yeah, great, great question. So we are a SaaS business. So we, we sell software on a subscription basis. And the, the main use case we're serving is, is sort of as I described, we're helping enterprises uh, kind of communicate between each other and uh, execute transactions of different types. So supply chain is a very popular use case for us. Um, one of our big customers is Bayer Crop Science, for instance, and they are working um, in you know certain parts of the agribusiness value chain to uh, track and trace certain products. I'll leave it uh, you know that that level of vague, but it's that's a situation where you've got value flowing from company A to company B to company C, etc., both in a physical sense and a monetary sense, and there's not a great system to unify everyone's sort of record keeping of where that bag of seed or eventually sort of end product, you know, bushel of uh, soybeans uh, actually is at a given time because it requires coordination across multiple different enterprise stakeholders. 
And so blockchain is kind of the technology that has you actually uniquely facilitated that use case where in the past you had sort of partial solutions um, that were messaging based, but didn't create uh, a single ledger of activity, if you will, of authenticated activity. So, um, so again, can I ask, can I yeah. break and ask a question? You know, I'm trying to understand how, how, how the use case you're describing differs from the basic use case for something like uh, a common database, right? So suppose I go to these companies and I say, look, you know, I will give you the equivalent of a database, which is like a giant Google doc, all of you have access to. Whenever you make a transaction, uh, I record it in this, and I've contracted with all of you in this Google Doc, which all of you can see. I happen to be the proprietor of it, and I, you, know, you guys are paying me money basically to ensure that it's fair to everybody. And you guys have a copy of it. You see every transaction that goes on. How is that different than, uh, I mean, that's, just, that's, like, that's like a Google Doc owned by 20 companies or an Excel sheet owned by 20 companies. How is that different from what you're describing? Great question. It, so to your point, um, the big difference is that uh, in one scenario, you really need an entity. In, in one, you kind of don't. Like, they don't really have to tell us what they're doing with our, our software. You know, uh, sometimes they choose to. But, you know, so in the case that you set up this shared entity, and this has happened many times, right? So if you look in financial services, you've got uh, to a certain extent, the Federal Reserve uh, with ACH, you've got the DTCC, you've got SWIFT, you've got industry-owned clearinghouses. And more or less what the DCCC does is, you know, when you make a bunch of equities trades, at the end of the day, they balance all the ledgers and say, who owns what? So in, in essence, it is that function that you're describing. Um, what we think is different about blockchain technology, there's still a need for a commercial actor to support this network of activity, right? Like uh, these companies are not going to be able to do it with cobbling together open source or, you know, coding things from scratch themselves. You need some coordination force, but you really don't need to ask us for any sort of permission, right? It's sort of once the network is established, you sort of really own it and operate in a way that kind of no, we haven't seen SaaS companies of this sort of web 2.0 uh, stripe behave that way. The, the sort of the posture is that, hey, we've got your data um, and, you know, we'll either share it with your suppliers on a permission basis or we own it or we're holding it for you. You know, it's, it's different sort of um, cases. There are some marketplaces uh, like, you know, B2B marketplaces like Ariba, for instance, that sort of fulfill a similar function. But when you're talking about internal core systems of these enterprises, like their ERP systems, et cetera, they're really quite hesitant to hand too much of that to any sort of vendor control on a, you know, sort of custodial basis, if you will. So I think the big difference is just the control that uh, blockchain allows these companies. Sorry, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, if I could take a shot at that for Corey. So in the scenario you described where some third entity comes, which isn't involved in this supply chain, and says, I will set up this thing for you guys and I'll make sure that nobody cheats anybody else and everything works, but I have control of it. You then have to trust them, whatever that third party is, say it's McKinsey Markets comes in and they wanna set this thing up for you. You have to trust McKinsey Markets to do the right thing. What these guys have built using all this cryptographic technology is a thing which they, they license this offer to you and you run it. But once you set it up, Block Apps doesn't have any control over it and the decision process for validating transactions and all that it's controlled completely by the actual platform and um 
the companies that are in there, as long as the crypto, they trust the cryptography, they can be confident that no, two edit, no entity is cheating any other entity uh, in that marketplace or in that supply chain. So it's, it's a way of setting up a kind of autonomous system, which you have to trust crypto, but you don't have to trust a third party. Does that make sense? It does, but I'm just trying to get at the source of the paranoia. Um, have, you know, I see that one might be skeptical of, well, I mean, I'm asking, is there reason to think that in the past companies have been cheated by their third it's, party vendors? It's actually, um, I, I think the fundamental issue that companies are running into is the question that everyone is running into is that ultimately can data be used against you? Like, yes, if you want to trust the central party to hand them all your data and, um, you know, and companies have done that traditionally in a very common way. And now people are asking the question, wait a second, that data is now a very, very powerful asset in and of themselves. And it can give them a competitive advantage that could be used against me one day. So that's why companies are looking into methodologies that allow them not to get all those advantages of, you know, collectively having a shared data repository without having to give it in the hands of a single party that could use that data um, against them in various ways. And by against them, I don't mean it's directly oppositional. It can be just like they increase the costs of accessing their systems as you become reliant on them. Yes. Yeah, if I, if, if I get these, say there's 100 companies in this auto supply chain that are using this platform and this is how they actually transact and you know, it's multi-billion dollar business, if it's all entrusted into one guy who built a little database for them, what's to stop that guy from just starting to charge a little bit for more for every transaction because he's in a very powerful position now, right? Plus he sees all the data flow and he can do all kinds of stuff. Whereas this autonomous system, nobody controls it and uh, there's nobody that could, uh, you know, uh, extort the participants on the platform. But as far as I understand, you guys do support the blockchain, right? So what happens if you just say, as the network grows, you got to pay me a little bit more to support it or else I'm just going to cut it loose. Don't you similarly have control over the people who are using your software? Um, certainly, yes, to a certain degree, right? I, I think it's, um, they, it's obvious to me, uh, having worked with big companies for a long time now, that big companies don't use things that are free, you know, uh, because there's no one to hold accountable, right? So, and they, they, so their preference is certainly to contract with the vendor. Um, that said, you know, I think that we don't really have a technical means to just shut them off. It's sort of their network. Uh, it's not really ours. Like we don't necessarily, um, in certain cases, we're actually managing the infrastructure. In certain cases, it's sort of remotely installed. And so we couldn't turn it off if we wanted to, so to speak. Um, but I think the key aspect uh, to Victor's point though, is that even if we could shut it off up until that point, they had sort of direct access to all of the complete system data. Uh, and which is not typically the posture of other companies uh, of this nature. And so we think that we are, I don't want to say easier to replace, um, but it just puts the end user in a safer position as far as uh, downstream price increases, all that sort of thing, because again, the data is more resident with them. Um, Certainly, there would be costs to like switch to another blockchain vendor or, or that sort of thing. It's not going to be zero, um, but 
just architecturally, um, you know, our belief is is that uh, there's a real difference between you know us in a in a model in which you kind of hand everything over uh, in a fully sort of hosted manner, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Corey, one way to think about it is that we see ourselves more like Windows than we do as Google. So Google, every interaction that you do, they collect that information and they have all that. They have all of that and they keep it and they utilize that to create other products. Whereas with like, for example, Windows, you put on the applications, but Microsoft may not know what kind of applications you're running out of. And that's sort of more of the model that our company follows. We don't really try to um, look into the data that you're using and sharing with other people. Yeah, the threat here generally is assuming the company or the companies involved uh, are running their own instance of it. It's not that block apps could ever shut it off. It could be, oh, we're going to deny you this update, you know, version 2.67. And, you know, you that's, uh, okay, that's not good, but you have a lot of time to adapt to find another vendor and deal with, you know, oh, we can't have version 2.67. We're running on 2.66. We'll just keep running on 2.66 till we find another vendor to replace this platform. So it's not quite as strong a threat as if, um, block apps were hosting the whole database, which included every single mission critical thing that was going on uh, in this automobile supply chain or something like that. So it's, it's just a question of degree, I suppose. Sure. Let me ask a question about trade-offs because we hand a lot of our data to Google and we may complain about that, but the fact is their service is quote unquote free in other respects. So they're extracting value from my data. And as a result, I don't have to pay them. So I, uh, how about someone says, okay, it's great. You're giving me control over my data, but you know, I'd rather that I just didn't have to pay you so much. Whether you actually took control of my data, you're actually taking control of my money instead of my data. And that's a, that's, that's a trade-off you might have, right? But nothing's free in this world. So is it right that you guys are simply uh, taking a charge, uh, basically extracting a price instead of extracting data? Okay, so this is an interesting question. I would also say broadly, blockchain is kind of experimenting with different business models at this point. Um, one of those business models is, you know, you kind of release a token and hope it appreciates in price. So this is not one that we've ever done and have considered. But if, uh, if uh, for the listeners, if you ever followed kind of the ICO, um, kind of boom and bust, if you will, from sort of mid 2018 to kind of early mid 2017, um, that is a path that people have followed. And, you know, it's actually an illustrative example, um, though, I mean, there's plenty of issues with it, but the idea uh, is that these systems have a certain shared ownership. Um, and, you know, people buy these tokens, they hope that the usage of the tokens um, drives the supply down and then drives the price up and so they participate in the success of these, these systems. There are plenty legal issues in certain cases with this idea, et cetera, et cetera. So we've never pursued it. But some of that concept I think is still relevant. So, um, in, you know, I think there's a split also by who you are, basically. So um, if we're talking about Fortune 500 companies, uh, they would rather pay, right? Their data is so valuable that they would rather pay up front um, and uh, would the you know the the idea that they would sort of want a freebie is really unlikely to me um, in the kind of a core transactional use case. I just don't really see it for 
really big mission critical businesses. For certain startups or, or all that sort of thing, um, I can imagine them being served in a scenario where um, they give a little bit of non-monetary value and in exchange don't have to pay the, the monetary side. It's something we haven't explored in great depth, um, I, I guess I would say. We are largely working with the, the segment of the market that has really big mission critical business processes, um, the value of which would be so much larger than, you know, uh, the, the kind of contract that they would have with us that it would be, um, yeah, almost cheaper to pay than try to um, work with some party that could really leverage the, that core data um, that, uh, um, yeah, it might, it might cost them more uh, in the end. And you know, typically, this is how big companies have just consumed enterprise software. Almost never are they um, handing their data to someone for free. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I was just going to say, in a way, Corey's question is basically like, why does enterprise software exist, right? So, so why are there, uh, you know, um, heavy software packages that are highly proprietary and that companies pay a lot of money to get, like Oracle databases, for example? Why don't they just... Uh, show an ad to every one of the employees uh, every time they use the database and that funds it. But um, I think there are, there are deep reasons why enterprise software exists and why if you were in the, in the shoes of a CTO at a Fortune 500 company, you would not want to, you know, do some lightweight thing that pays for itself by ads or by information arbitrage or something. You would just want to pay a price and get a nice, stable, really high-performing piece of software that you can run an instance of. Yeah, and I, I think primarily the reason is just a cost component. Like um, to your point, Corey, is that we use free services, but we get the benefit of having access to software. Now, companies have to pay for access to these um, intermediary services that we talk about. So they're already paying for them. Now, companies that uh, typically are much more comfortable paying, say, a flat rate for using something than a percentage of the cost of that good. Because that can be an immense amount of value that is taken away from them. And most of these intermediate services that we're talking about have moved to that model. So, and we're talking about taking very large amounts of money away from the over-transaction. -trans it can be anywhere from, you know, 30% of the value of the transaction. Like to give a concrete example, um, I only learned recently that in the airline business, a huge uh, amount of the cost of a ticket is for the aggregator, which is this intermediary that collects site availability from all the airlines. They charge up to 30% of the cost of a ticket just to aggregate and provide that information to people. So um, what I'd like to do now just for fun and for our listeners who, some of whom have experience with startups, but many of whom are not, maybe they're academics or, or writers or something. I would just like to role play a little bit, and uh, I don't know who wants to take it, uh, Kieran or Victor, but I'm going to be like a, a venture capitalist that I bumped into you at an elevator in an elevator, and no. I just want to hear your elevator pitch for your company. Who, who's, who's, who's uh, let's let Victor do this one. You know, I have this like beautiful screen <laughs> from fundraising. It's um, we uh, we closed our our Series A uh, kind of late last year, um, and. Right now, I'm actually not on the road raising capital, in part because, you know, everyone's quarantined. Um, and so, yeah, it's been beautiful. Uh, for, for those who don't know, capital raising is an intense uh, endeavor. 
so yeah, I think I think I'm gonna throw it to Vic. Vic, are you up for this? Sure, I'll I'll give you our elevator pitch. Um, oh, wait, okay, we're gonna role play it. Okay, so okay, go ahead, you go. I'm gonna be like, hey, uh, aren't you that block apps guy? I am. I'm one of the founders and chief product officer. Wow, what what do you guys do again? I I, I uh, are you? Is it a coin? Uh, no, we don't do anything related to crypto. So what we basically do is we take the same technology that powers uh, public cryptocurrencies and we use that to help enterprises track assets. And these assets can be physical, like supply chain assets, they can be financial, or they can be workflows. And we believe that this is a transformative technology Already many uh, top Fortune 500 companies have already spent millions of dollars into it, and it's going to be an entirely new category of enterprise software. Oh, so are you, are you replacing like Oracle for them? Um, we are basically creating a, uh, what I would call collaborative Oracle. So in instances where you need to share information among other participants, for example, in your partner network, we create a data store that is cryptographically secure and shareable among all those participants. Wow. Uh, so who's your, who's your biggest competitor? Our biggest competitor is, well, if you look at the blockchain world, um, our biggest competitor in the enterprise blockchain space is probably IBM. And they have a product called Fabric. Oh, so it's, is it just, it competes head-to-head -head with you guys? Um, in some cases it does, but rarely, um, typically people come to us because uh, one of the advantages that we have is we came out of the Ethereum ecosystem, which is both has a cryptocurrency, but has a huge, large developer community. So, um, you know, unlike other dedicated enterprise blockchain system, there's an embedded community. And a lot of these embedded developers have gone on to enterprises and want to start blockchain projects inside those enterprises. So typically what we find is those kind of developers are looking for the best fit in the Ethereum ecosystem. And we're one of the leaders in that space. Wow. So uh, do you have a lot of traction? Yeah, we do. Uh, we have paying customers. We have our product in production and, um, you know, we have had, we just completed our Series A financing. Wow, what, what's your biggest uh, install? Um, well, some of our customers uh, have publicly announced and um, one of our biggest customers right now is uh, Bayer Crop Science. Bayer, like the German company? Yes, Bayer, the pharmaceutical and agricultural giant. Wow, awesome, how, how much did you guys raise? Uh, we <laughs> can't disclose that. We right can now. stop it's there. We can stop there. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, what, how, now, how, uh, what was rate my verisimilitude? How, how uh, um, realistic was that? Fitting image, I guess I would say, I think you didn't cut Victor off enough. <laughs> I think uh, you waited just a second too long before firing the next question. I, yeah, I, I, yes. I didn't completely morph from my nice podcast host uh 
persona into the actual VC persona. Correct. Um, and and you didn't ask me about the numbers early enough. Typically, yep. they would ask us, you know, <laughs> what are your revenue projections, five year, you know, what's the burn rate, all of that stuff. Which yeah, I would have. you didn't ask yeah. me. <laughs> no, you're right. If I were more hard nosed, I would have been like, what's your head count? What's your burn rate? What's your run rate? What uh, are you? That's kind of what about? I wanted to chime in with. Uh, before I, I get there, I want to ask a, a kind of background question. You guys are coming out of the Ethereum uh, system. Uh, why aren't you coming out of the Bitcoin system and how do the two differ? Maybe I'll take this one because Victor took the brunt of the, the last few. Uh, it, so there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is um, kind of, there's a, a bit of a right place, right time aspect to it. But so, so the reason Ethereum exists, right? Why didn't uh, the Ethereum team try to retrofit Ethereum on top of Bitcoin? They actually did. Um, Vitalik uh, Buterin, the founder, uh, kept basically trying to release projects that added some aspect of functionality either directly to Bitcoin or as their own standalone blockchain um, and found that he kept solving sort of the same problems over and over again. Basically, so, so Bitcoin is really good at um, its core use case, which is sort of the storage and transmission of value and, you know, some tracking aspects. Um, and it's, it's difficult to extend beyond that, uh, basically because it's not a programmable system per se. It actually, I mean, it has a language, so you can kind of tell it what to do, but the, the sort of set of tools in your toolbox is very limited. And that was on purpose. They, they basically, the designers of Bitcoin wanted to be sure that this system would last for you know, a thousand years. And so they made it as simple as possible because the security analysis of it was simpler. Um, what we realized, though, uh, is that um, if you're looking beyond just the storage of value use case, um, you're going to need a little more ability to kind of uh, add new functionality to the system as it's running. Um, and basically, uh, that required a net new blockchain. So um, Ethereum was born, and I personally happened to join the Ethereum project in the summer of 2014. And so I kind of saw early on that there was, uh, even before the launch, tremendous developer interest in Ethereum, uh, early traction, um, and saw that it would likely, from a developer perspective at least, uh, eclipse Bitcoin in a reasonable period of time. And for developers, that is certainly the case. Bitcoin's still kind of number one in market cap, um, but I rarely hear of people trying to build an application on, on Bitcoin. They're, they're doing it on some other... Uh, technology that came after Bitcoin, usually Ethereum. Did I answer your question? That did actually, yeah. Now a question about your startup. So give me the picture, right? Uh, three guys in a room, two guys in a room. What happened when you guys left that cafe? When you le I want to hear the story. You left the cafe. Should, you're going to start should, a company. Give us the story Victor, of your company. Like this one, yeah. Victor, you take it. Should, should I take this one? So um, as I said, there were kind of like two parallel things happening, um, two groups happening. Uh, Kieran and Jim, having been introduced by Steve, were working on Ethereum technology and really just like Jim as technologist really wants to understand something by getting his hands dirty and building on it. So they were working together and building what would eventually become the, the sort of start of uh, our platform that we now market. And then on the side, uh, Jim and I were discussing other startup ideas. And we, were, we had really enjoyed working together at my previous startup. And, you know, I was moving back to North America. We were talking about different ventures. Now, all of these kind of coalesced in 
this one week where Karen was running two events in the Bay Area. And um, they were, one event was a, it was basically the first sort of academic blockchain conference. And, you know, everyone in the blockchain world, though the world was very small at the time, was at this conference. And so there were people from the Bitcoin core devs, there were the founders of Ethereum there, the starts of a, a bunch of other now well-known blockchain projects while in this room. But, you know, the entire blockchain world at that time was about 30 people. And then at the same time he was running that conference in the same week, he was running a conference for O'Reilly, which is a big tech publisher. They do very shiny conferences. They rented, you know, a very expensive uh, location down in downtown San Francisco at the pier. There were a thousand attendees, you know, big people from the financial sector and well-known startup founders. And um, these things happen back to back. And so the academic conference happened first. I will readily admit that I didn't really understand almost anything about the blockchain space at the time, but it really, what came out of that was that the way they were talking about blockchain, you know, I, I knew Bitcoin, I knew people that were uh, mining Bitcoin, but they were talking about this like programmable blockchain with Ethereum and Ethereum hadn't launched yet. So they were saying like, they were really trying to create this sort of new kind of application platform that could be shared across all these people. And it was really obvious that I'd never heard blockchain described in those terms before. And then when we went to the O'Reilly conference, people were talking about just Bitcoin and they didn't understand. And even though like banks were there that were saying, you know, we're really interested in this technology, we want to do something. Um, they really didn't understand where the technology was going. And this point was really hammered home for me because, you know, during one of the lunches, we would sit at tables with other people. Some of them were like panelists. And I would just, after, you know, being in this academic conference for a couple of days, talking about some of the concepts that I had learned over these last couple of days. And some of those people got up, repeated word for word exactly what I told them at lunch. And people were like, that guy really understands blockchain. <laughs> so there was this clear gap between what businesses and the demand that we were seeing from businesses for blockchain technology and the technologists and what was actually happening. So that's the, it was really, really obvious in this case that there was this gap between those two sides and that the three of us, uh, given our backgrounds and given our general approach to things, could really fill that gap. So what's the next step after that? You guys built a product, uh, just you three, or did you raise some angel money? Ah, good question. Maybe I'll, I'll take this one. So um, within a couple weeks, we had started working more seriously. Um, Victor was sort of already preparing to move back to North America and kind of transition out of uh, his previous business uh, formally. Um, Jim and I, Jim had been coding for a couple months to kind of understand this stuff, but we got together and we're like, okay, we have like a general sense of kind of where we want to go and set up some first sort of technical deliverables. Like let's just, you know, take this, take what we've got and then kind of wrap it in a simple API for uh, developers and, and businesses to consume. 
and so we sort of set to work on this. Um, took a couple months, I guess. Uh, I was still enrolled in classes at the time. I remember distinctly thinking, okay, well, I can work on this and in parallel finish my degree, which of course just never happens, right? Ah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we kind of got pulled into the, the coding, um, you know, kind of 12 hours a day, not really kind of quarantined a little bit, right? You know, or, you know, not leaving the, the house that often. Um, we joined uh, Consensus. So um, we were sort of uh, always in touch. So Consensus is my dad's company. Um, but uh, what do they do? They are... They do a good number of things. Um, they have functioned as an incubator, as they did for us, um, and they still have that part of the business, but they're, they're mostly a blockchain software and services firm. So they make certain application layer technologies and do uh, a fair amount of professional services in the space. Um, you can check them out there. They're, um, they're doing a, a whole bunch of interesting stuff. Um, in any case, the so we sort of joined, um, kind of as a to be incubated uh, model. Um, and around, you know, so, so in effect, we became employees a few months in um, and then started to hire sort of at, at that point. Vic, any, anything to add to that? Yeah, two things. Um, really side note, um, yeah. I sort of handled the initial negotiation of us kind of becoming incubated by consensus. I didn't realize at that time that uh, Joseph Lubin, the founder of Consensus, was Kieran's father. So I, <laughs> I probably would have negotiated much better had I known that at the time. And we really came in as a, as a company ourselves. So we really knew the three founders. And then um, we kind of uh, came in with the understanding that we were uh, beginning a company from that. Other, other people just joined it as more like employees or more individuals, but we were kind of one of the first groups that joined Consensus. That had yeah. Idea. To add to that, the early days of Consensus had sort of a beta works model where people, to some extent, float from project to project, and projects that got traction would eventually kind of get turned into so, companies. So, so the, this doesn't it. sound like a conventional incubator. It's not just they have a space and who wants to start a company basically yeah. rent space there. But, it's, but, for us, it sort of functioned as a more or less conventional incubator, but for plenty of companies, it did not. Or plenty, plenty of things that became companies later. So, so I want to get some understanding. Sorry, not to talk about your dad's company, but it seems interesting. People come in on a project that's conceived by consensus, and then they, if this project takes off, this may get spun out. So it's essentially a kind of factory for Spin yeah, out. more a venture production studio than an incubator, but it kind of did a bit of both. Sorry, Steve. This was one way to describe it. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Is you know this was early days of Ethereum, and um, uh, Kieran's father consent and his company Consensus were trying to build an ecosystem around Ethereum to try to just add value to the whole thing. So the thing with Ethereum is that it's a Turing complete system, and you can build all kinds of really cool apps that uh, applications that have lo internal logic and things like this you couldn't do with bitcoin so the idea that you would have a kind of studio or place where you would back certain developers to build really cool things that show the power of ethereum that was a strat i think that was a strategy in the early years exactly yeah yeah and, and to add to that like consensus has since become the world's largest blockchain studio they have you know thousands of employees at this point and 
at the point we joined, I think we were like probably in the first and dozen. So they, they, they were still trying to work out their model too. And now they do things like blockchain consulting, enterprise projects. They do a bunch of different things in addition to um, incubating different companies like ourselves. And uh, what's the, so coming back to hopefully exponential growth, give me a picture <laughs> of the growth of the company. The company was founded when formally? Um, well, yeah, so formally, so, so uh, all of this that we're describing is early 2015. We spun out early, mid 2016, so, and raised independent capital. So technically the entity was sort of created in 2016, but uh, the concept and the people really beginning of 2015. And what's your growth been like since then? Um, yeah, interesting question. I would say excellent. Um, the, so the first year we were mostly building the product. Um, it kind of culminated at the end of 2015 with an announcement with Microsoft of blockchain as a service. So uh, sort of jointly with consensus, we uh, approached Microsoft with the idea that, hey, you know, they've got enterprise customers. We've got blockchain software that they may want to consume, why don't we sort of together figure out how to bring um, those customers, uh, either more customers to their cloud running our software or you know, expand their existing customers in that situation as well. Um, and that whole idea that you would can sort of consume blockchain technology like you consume other SaaS technologies got called blockchain as a service. And we were sort of the first example of it, if you will. Um, and Microsoft signed on to that idea. Yes, that's right. And so the kind of end of 2015 uh, started, you know, the, was at the beginning of that marketing effort. So our product is, um, you know, kind of early feature complete at that point um, and then starting to really hit the market. So we start to kind of commercialize through 2016, though still but mostly POCs at that stage. Um, uh, people are seeking to learn about the technology, use it at very small scale production, kind of uh, that sort of thing. They're still kind of figuring out how to adopt it. Um, to a certain extent, that's true through 2017, that we got our first larger scale kind of uh, called pilot production initiatives. Um, and kind of flowing through that, we got some good announcements, uh, like we uh, EHP Billiton uh, was a customer of ours, um, usually world's largest mining company um, that, that got to a, a production stage. And that sort of carried us through to kind of a maturing market in kind of 2018, 2019, 2020, um, where, you know, it's, it's um, we're more comparable to just a traditional SaaS business. So uh, I think in the very early days, it was kind of blue ocean and there were aspirational aspects of it. Um, but, you know, now it's like we got a sales team, we've got kind of uh, processes, we sort of understand um, quite well what the market needs and our, our product meets that need and is uh, at least we think sort of the best one out there there's also been a kind of maturing of categories so at the beginning if you ask like who are your competitors we would we might not have had an answer you know to steve's vc point um now it's it's sort of like it's this one this one and that one and the the people who are consuming the technology are actually kind of comparing it on granular dimensions and um the problem is Sorry, Kieran, I just want to get a sense. Are these companies that are younger than yours or are they mature companies that have basically entered your market? Both, both. Uh, so IBM being, you know, um, extra mature in, in a sense. Um, but there are uh, startups uh, as well at, at sort of varying levels of maturity. 
And this partnership with Microsoft, what does it involve? Uh, is it a partnership or is it like a stamp of approval? How do you work with them? Great question. So um, there's sort of two things. So Microsoft, Amazon, Google, who we have all also partnered with, um, have a marketplace concept whereby they make third-party software sort of available in a transactable format to their customers. So customer wants our product, which is called Strato, they can just go click, buy it um, through their marketplace. And this is more, it's more of like a test environment uh, in a sense than um, a place where customers will really consume and keep things. Usually they'll, they'll test it out there and then if they like it, they'll get directly in touch uh, with us. Though we have had some people who just stay on the marketplace for a long time. So the first thing we did was get our software available to be transactable in their marketplace. Then we work with them to sort of jointly go to market where we're working with um, some sub, sub segments of their sales team, both the blockchain side, but people who are um, in industries that we're interested in or um, are involved with our customers or particular accounts we're, we're interested in talking to. It's, it's in that sense, sort of a commercial go to market partnership. Last question. How big are you guys as far as uh, headcount? Uh, about 25. Scattered everywhere? Largely in Brooklyn. I mean, all at home uh, at this point. Um, we have a few people who are not in Brooklyn. Growth rate? Um, substantial, though, yeah. I mean, we're all expecting a, a bit of a slowdown from the, the, the circumstances, but um, venture comparable, I guess I would say, you know, which tends to be uh, pretty aggressive. I wanted to... Uh, ask you some questions. So um, Vic was running a startup in Beijing and came back uh, to the U.S. Kieran, you started out in the Bay Area and now you guys are in Brooklyn. So first I want Vic to say something a little bit about the startup scene in Beijing or in greater China versus here in the U.S. Any any comments on that you want our listeners to know about? <laughs> I could talk for hours on that topic. Um, I mean, I, I will say everything you hear about it is true. I mean, the level of competition and the level of quality is unsurpassed probably than any other place in the world, except maybe Silicon Valley. And I think in many ways it exceeds um, the level of competitiveness there too. Can, can you and, 996? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, like, uh, well, um, I can, I, how do you want me to explain it? Well, maybe you can define it. Well, I think our, our listeners don't, I, I, this may even be a little bit outdated, but I think I have the numbers right. I mean, for a long time, the standard work day was in, for these Chinese startups was 9 a.m. till 9 p.m., six days a week. And, yes. uh, and that, you don't even see that too much in Silicon Valley, right? So. Well, and I, I will say why, why I want to, to ask you a question about that is that lately um, one common complaint during the quarantine period is that has now become like 24 seven. Like people are expected <laughs> to respond to things now that they can work from home anytime, at least in the tech world. And yeah, that, that's, um, you know, they work very, very long hours. Um, not necessarily incredibly efficiently, but it's just expected. Like if you, if I would send an email to my employees at um, 11 p.m. at night, I would expect an answer within a few minutes. And honestly, like I, I, I don't want to 
to describe myself as a monster, but that was just the expectation that you would expect people to respond to you. And, you know, particularly if you had a question on WeChat, you would expect, you know, anytime, any day, that's the level of communication. And when, when we talk to investors that are in China, for example, that's what, that's the level of responsiveness that people um, expect. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, in the other startups that I'm involved in, they, they always complain like, oh, we're dealing with an American company. So like it's Saturday, we won't get anything back from them today. And and if it's a European company, it could be like, my God, it's one of their three-day weekends or something. You're never going to hear anything. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and, you know, like, it's just that that mindset of entrepreneurialism is, is not, it, it, it's not a, it's really, really common. Like you see, um, and you have an enormous amount of really, really good technical talent, both coming from local universities and coming back to China from studying abroad. So you have all of this um, idea of like, uh, that people are bringing ideas and bringing them to market as quickly as possible. The, the other thing about China is that there's a strong revenue focus. I think like, you know, when I started companies in the early 2000s, people were more focused on kind of creating large audiences and kind of figuring out what the business model or how we'd make money later. And China really never had that. They, they really focused on, you know, from day one, how do we become a profitable company? And how do we grow that way? And I think that's become a more, as we've seen kind of from the implosions of a lot of unicorns, that's become more of a sustainable model, I think. So uh, speaking of unicorns, I think your, your Brooklyn office is a WeWork office. Correct. <laughs> and um, so maybe tell me a little bit or tell my list, our listeners a little bit about the startup scene in Brooklyn, because to most old school Silicon Valley guys, uh, it's like, what, Brooklyn? That's like hipsters drinking coffee and, you know, what, what's going on there? So this is a good question. And I would say, um, it's definitely different than Silicon Valley, um, having spent you know, at least a fair amount of time in Berkeley. It's not as if every conversation that you, you know, overhear in a coffee shop is about valuations or you know, Kubernetes or, 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 or something of that nature. It's not a monoculture in the same way, which I like. Of course, I also grew up in New York, so I have a, have a bias to this um, direction, obviously. Uh, New York employs a ton of technology. Technologists um, and a lot of them work for banks and, and all that sort of thing. And so I think probably over the last ten to fifteen years, you've seen a sort of slow transition, um, slow transition of the good technologists at big companies, big traditional enterprises, uh, into more of a startup. You've seen as more capital has been available. There've been more companies. New York's uh, it's got its traditional strengths, right? Um, it's good fintech, probably better than Silicon Valley is for proximity reasons more than anything else. It's good at ad tech, also for obvious reasons. It's, it's, it's good at certain hard tech enterprise software businesses as well, um, I, I guess I would say. But um, there is less of a startup monoculture, I guess. Or, I mean, so, you know, in Silicon Valley, of course, there are big tech companies that are no longer startups and there are small tech companies, but you kind of feel like you're in a startup culture everywhere. Um, here, much less so. Um, it's almost, you wouldn't really notice unless you sort of purposefully went through a meetup or something, but there are an enormous number of startups, right? Um, and the amount of capital is maybe 
half of Silicon Valley, something in, the, in that ballpark. Um, it's just a bigger place, so the density is is way lower, but the, the overall activity is probably almost comparable, I guess I would say. Uh, Boston also has an interestingly similar feel. It's a smaller city and a little more, um, Boston has a lot of hard tech. New York is, you know, has plenty of it, but uh, just because of all the universities there, but you, you less get the sense that you're just living amongst startups only in Boston compared to, uh, say, San Francisco. Well, yeah, and I would say the, the flavor of the startups is different. Like, you know, I think in Silicon Valley, um, most startups that you kind of see are, are consumer-focused startups. But in New York, for example, you see a lot more enterprise-focused startups because, to Karen's point, a lot of the technologists came out of big enterprises, so they see the problems that exist in those kind of environments. I'm, I'm struggling to, this is just my own limitation, but I'm struggling to think of like, what's the most prominent unicorn that's come out of your backyard in Brooklyn? Mm -hmm. um, other than WeWork? Uh, yeah, that's, no, that's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who else is in New York? Datadog, I think, is in New York. Uh, pretty successful recent IPO. Um, what's the cloud company? We're actually one of their customers. Uh, DigitalOcean is in New York. I mean, IBM is in New York also, and so it, it kind of, I mean, they're not a startup, but it, it sort of influences the dynamics for sure. Um, I would get back to you, but there's like a sizable number. You just don't think of them because they're B2B or there's some sort of like kind of niche but giant use case that they're working on. Um, I agree with Victor that uh, more of the tech successes are in Silicon Valley. Let me, let me, I'm going to make this up right now. So I, I think we're running a little bit low on time. And so I'll, let me finish with, uh, if Corey doesn't have any other questions. Let me Accent one. One question. It's a little bit of a New York uh, kind of thing. Is it all in Brooklyn or is it scattered? Is there some startup scene, some part of the startup scene happening in Queens or the Bronx or even upper uh, Manhattan? I assume that lower Manhattan may be a bit too expensive for startup uh, space, but let me know. I would say startups seem to like lower Manhattan up to maybe 23rd-ish street, at which point startups stop uh, going there. There's uh, people in New York joke about the I never go north of 14th Street rule. Really, it's, it's, it's like 23rd. But so actually a fair amount of startups in lower Manhattan and then a good number in Brooklyn, I would say. Haven't heard of any in Queens, uh, the Bronx, or Staten. It just seems like you're needlessly burning money if you are going to those kind of locations for real estate, right? In the Bay Area, you're forced to spend money because everything's expensive. But you've got pretty good connectivity around the whole uh, area of the five boroughs. So I'm just curious as to why people would go to lower Manhattan since it's just much more expensive. At the very least, you might want to put your sales office there. If your customers are banks, then you can walk to them. Sure. I guess I can see that. Yeah. You want to be close to your customers. That's, that's a solid argument. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's, um, it might be a mix. Uh, engineers seem to like living in Brooklyn, I guess I would say. Williamsburg. Um, plenty of them. Greenpoint, you know, um, but all over the place. But yeah, so I guess the, the creative side of the business has an increasing, you know, probability of uh, living in Brooklyn. Uh, and the commercial side could vary. You know, they might even live in Jersey or Connecticut or something. Um, all right, my last time. question. Uh, let's pick a time scale. It could be two years, three years. I hope it's not five years. 
Um, and uh, we bring you back on the show after your successful exit. Um, what, what, what is the story that you tell us? Ah, good question. Well, okay, so I would hope that it's longer because at least my preference is more like an IPO type outcome, right? And that'll take longer than two years, uh, than uh, an acquisition type outcome. Though, you know, of course, we'll see the, the market as it develops, but um, we're having fun, you know, we're doing interesting stuff. And um, the, the, we're solving real problems for, for the customers and they would not be necessarily happy if we just became a part of a big company that may or may not, you know, um, continue supporting our product in the, the way that they've become accustomed to on a, on a go forward basis. So my hope would be to just grow the thing to the point that it uh, can IPO. Um, you know, there's, there are many questions of whether that'll happen um, related to how the market evolves, uh, how we execute, how we raise financing, all, all that sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, IPO would be the best outcome. I think the secondary thing that might happen is, so if you look at the big tech companies, they're all actually entering blockchain. So Microsoft, um, obviously we're not their only partner, um, SAP Oracle, Amazon, all these guys have some sort of blockchain offering, both partner and, you know, I, I guess I would say light first party offerings, things that, you know, clearly they're not throwing a thousand people on, but something they're willing to brand and say, hey, this is the Oracle blockchain service, that, that sort of thing. So what I can imagine happening is that um, some of our, uh, some of the players like us who are focused sort of on the enterprise software aspect of blockchain um, get acquired by one of these big players, let's say. And maybe we might be the first one, someone else might be the first one, et cetera. And then what I would imagine is that they would all probably um, try to have a matching capability just because that's the way these things uh, often go, basically. Once it's strategic enough that um, you, you as a big enterprise feel that you need to bring in um, experts that would be hard to grow in-house or hire um, and who have existing customer bases or some real product advantage, that sort of thing. Once one has done that, I bet the others will feel the same way. And so they'll, they'll sort of switch from a mostly partner and kind of build strategy to a, all right, let's, let's buy a company and make this a first party thing. At that point, if we saw that happening, we might take the idea more seriously because um, the, the thing that big companies have is distribution. The thing that small companies have is like an understanding of customer needs and great products. The big company meets a great, takes a great product and adds its distribution uh, could be hard to compete with. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Well, I wish you guys luck. Our guests today have been uh, Kieran James Lubin and Vic. Victor Wong of the awesome startup Block Apps. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Yeah, great to meet you guys. Thanks,